This is Kirsten Gunnerud with the Play Create Podcast. I am introducing part two of our epic conversation with Robert Poynton. Rob is the author of Do Improvise and Do Pause and the creator of what in rocket trike language we call the launch pad. That's those three intertwined circles you've heard us talk a lot about. The ideas of let go, notice more, and use everything. In part one, we explored that launch pad, how Rob uses it, and how powerful a tool it can be to create forward with. And in this, part two of our conversation, we continue on into the power of the pause, how important it is to pause and what happens when we do, as well as the importance of play in business and life. Well, I like when you, you know, in Do Improvise, you talk about the idea of the artist and what they look like and, you know, our our Hollywood version of it and the creative. And what I love about this is that it gives it the structure so that you do trust it so that you can create within this parable instead of trying to think that it has to look. So you're breaking away your assumptions, getting those out of the way. You're like, before you're like, oh, I need to be alone in an attic working so hard to create this moment. And you're like, oh, I have an hour. What can I, what do I have right in front of me? Right. And it just changes that. And what's interesting is how, when you kind of scratch into it, I remember when we first started, so I'd worked in advertising and, and Gary had made his entire living being an artist, you know. And uh, when I first told him that in ad agencies, they had things called creative departments, he thought that was hilarious. <laughs> he just thought it was the silliest thing ever. He just didn't make any sense to him whatsoever. And I remember there was a creative director at Saatchi's in New York that we spoke to, Claire Hassett, brilliant woman. And, um, and I was a bit nervous because, uh, as you just said, Jill, the kind of this very open, forgiving, generous, immediate way of working seems very contrary to that stereotypical image of certainly of the kind of super chic, super cool ad agency creative. And, and so I said to her, Are you know, had it, Claire? Because she was a big fan of this work. And I was kind of like, how does that work for you then? And she said, oh, she said, it's just about the boundaries, right? So this is the way we always work, always have. Every creative team will work with each other like that because there's confidence and trust. But the, depending how well the agency's working, if the agency's working well, the creative group, that trust might spread out and everybody's willing to, hey, I've got an idea for your thing. And, you know, have you seen that, you know, and that exchange. And she says, if the agency's really on fire, that might extend out to some planners and trusted account guys and all the rest of it. She said, but the shutters always come down when it comes to the clients. So they're never allowed in, you know. And I thought that was really interesting about how if you're in the know, if you're on the inside, of course it's like this. Mm -hmm. But there's a in this image about, oh, it's my genius. And, you know, and that's about possession and ownership and status and and all that kind of stuff. It's understandable, you know. Well, and the other thing that that reminds me is when you were talking about communion, Mm. And that communication. And I just love that. And when I was listening to you this morning about the do pause and just how we communicate when we're going, trying to get the word in or trying to get the idea out or trying to lock it down versus Mm. when we're really listening or when we are pausing and giving it that breath so we can see it in a different way. And I think all of this, you know, when we look at your circles, we, Mm -hmm we always talk about the pause in the center. Like that's where we love to dwell. It, it can't happen. Well, maybe it can in our spiritual world um, of being in that space all the time. But when you're there, it's really like everything just stops yeah. and it's just such a timelessness and it's really yeah. fascinating. 
Thank you so much. That is a huge gift for me because this may sound super stupid, but I've never thought of that. I mean, oh. I've never thought of pause being at the center of the circles yeah. of that. It's so thank what you. happens is when you get into that, when all three circles are working mm-hmm. yeah. and you, you're in that moment where you're just in there, yeah. Yeah. you may That's still so actively be doing something, but your ability to see and understand and work, like it, it is, it's this magical. Yeah, it's that like ultimate presence place. where you're just like, you're just yeah. there. And you're no longer trying to get too far ahead or get too far behind. You're just. And I think what's interesting as well about there's a dissolution of boundaries happens there. So yeah. the normal, the normal, the normal barriers, you know, as Ed would say, the, the you know my friend Ed Brown, um, the Zen guy, he would say the veils are thinned. Yeah. You know, that these things that keep you apart. And so, I think my most pleasing sensation, and, and I'm delighted to say I had, I've had this on very rare occasions, but I had it yesterday actually is when um when i hear something said and i go oh that's amazing Mm -hmm. that's really and then i go where did that come from and then i go oh that was kind of in my voice that's Mm -hmm. interesting so i have no i describe it as being a conduit when and what it and it does feel like that it doesn't feel like any ownership or authorship it's that things are coming together currents are coming together and something comes through you yes not, not from you and and so that it, then it, and it's there in front of you and then you can look at it as if as as anyone would look at it um and you've been a channel for something um and that that's always going to come from somewhere else and someone else as well so it, it really isn't kind of truly yours but you were in the right place to, to in the right time to 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 speak that or mm-hmm. feel it or, or or you know do whatever it was you did with it and i think that that is where ego disappears as well, because it's the delight of the moment. Yes. You just kind of, oh, there's that kind of awful, awful, that moment full of awe, not awful. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's something else. Uh, yeah, that, that moment of, of kind of reverence almost. And, and it does have a kind of, time does sort of stop on it, doesn't it? It's sort of, yes. oh, there, there was a thing, there was a moment there, yeah. Yes. Yeah. You know, it's funny because we talk a lot about play and right. I think people get this idea of like, you know, we're playing twister in a corner or <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> bouncing balls somewhere. Or They're playing and creating. Yeah. And we're, what we're really going to is to, to me, all of this is that act of play where everything else falls away and you're just fully in what's right in front of you or engaging in somebody with somebody in a way that doesn't have this hardline seriousness not meaning that we can't be serious but meaning that we're just a little more open and we're when you talked about veils you're kind of lifting like oh well this is what I thought it would look like or this is what I thought would happen here we're just really flowing in that moment and seeing what comes up as it comes like right now I joke a lot because without saying your word of busy, I joke all the time that I'm dropping balls all the time, but really luckily they're bouncy. So right yeah. when I see them, they bounce back up. I'm like, oh, fantastic. There's a way of juggling of bouncing balls off the floor. There's a whole lot, I've thought a lot about play and, and, um, and playful, play and playfulness and, and, and stuff. And, and uh, see, I think the dolphins are like way ahead of us. Yeah. So I understand from marine biologists that, um, 
they haven't really found any sensible way to describe what dolphins do for 95% of the time, apart from playing. In other words, dolphins can meet their basic needs, you know, like by fishing 5% of the time. And the rest of the time, they're just larking around. And so Douglas Adams, the, you know, the author to Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and all that stuff, who is, was a complete genius. One of his books, the brilliantly titled uh, So Long and Thanks for All the Fish, which he called the fourth book in the trilogy of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which is hilarious in its own right. Um, so he, it turned out that on, in that story, the dolphins were the superior beings on this planet. And so long and thanks for all the fish was a message that they left for humanity when they left the planet, knowing it was going to be blown up to make way for some interstellar, you know, pathway or something. And, um, and I think that in that sense, that's what I mean about the dolphins being ahead of us, because imagine you could promise somebody, you could say, right, um, you're going to have all your material needs met in 5% of the time. And the rest of the time you can just do whatever you like and play around. So there's, so there's that part of it. Then there's another whole piece, which is um, play as, I think I've, I said the other day, uh, um, play is like profit. So I think this is increasingly clear now. 10 years ago, I probably would have been uh, harangued for saying this, but I don't think the purpose of business is to make a profit. The purpose of business is to do other things for humanity. That's why we talk about purpose-driven business these days. So it's to build a community or to give people amazing tools or to, you know, do whatever it is, allow them to make great journeys or express themselves. Um, but you can't run a business by making a loss. So the only way that you stay in business is by making a profit. And if you go back to the origins of capitalism, people understood that. And I think we lost sight of that. Where now in too much of our business, you know, in the financial world dwarfs, the, you know, the financial economy dwarfs the, the real economy. Uh, it's all about just making a profit and as fast as possible with, with none of that. Right. So what's that got to do with play? Well, the, the play for me is an output. So when you behave in a way that is satisfying and pleasing and delightful and full of joy, it, it's playful. It, the fun comes from the playing around, right? Uh, the point isn't to be in a cheesy kind of way, playful and funny and all that kind of stuff. Um, and actually, if you look at an improv show, uh, it actually, they're actually they're not normally very funny in the sense that if you were to record them, script them and enact them back, that nobody would laugh. So then you go, well, why are people laughing at improv shows? And why is it such a reliable uh, kind of form of, of theater and of comedy theater at that? And in my view, it's because uh, people are expressing that joy through the way that the actors are being together. So we just find it so pleasing, so delightful that we laugh. We laugh because he listened to her and she took what he said and then they did that with it, which was the obvious thing. And isn't that just delightful? And we all laugh, but it's actually not funny. Yeah. so in whether a joke is funny a script is funny it's a different kind of a thing so there's that and then the third piece of play is about uncertainty so play and playfulness is i think i like to think of play as a technology that we have developed and i don't mean a physical technology i mean a kind of human interactive technology to explore the unknown and to deal with uncertainty and if you look at all our games particularly those that get large televised audiences what a fantastic way to create all the human interest and drama without having to pay a Hollywood writer to write a script, right? You just get the people out on the field and, and they play. But for, for sure, nobody watches it on repeat apart from the fans of the team that just won the trophy. Because the essence of it is you don't know how it ends. And that's part of what keeps you at it. And so play and playfulness 
uh, are to do with a way of exploring uncertainty in a joyful manner. And the engineers, uh, the engineers and the kind of Protestants amongst us, uh, and I mean historically and culturally, so we live in an engineering dominated and Protestant work ethic dominated culture, that's my view. Um, my father was an aeronautical engineer, so his world revolved around uh, there being no play because play in a joint or a bearing, that's a bad thing. That's bad workmanship, that's sloppy, that's dangerous. And the same is true, you know, in, a, in an extreme Protestant way of thinking, joy is sinful, pleasure is sinful, so play is sinful. And so the combination of these two, and nowhere is that exemplified better than in modern North America, um, it's been taken to an extreme in a way, and obviously there's millions of other cultural influences, but that's a really strong one. It means that sort of, um, you know, that, that, we've misunderstood the nature of play as a way of exploring and engaging with uncertainty. Yeah. And, and so our desire to have future-proof strategies uh, is, is a kind of extreme reaction. You know, first of all, they're always going to fail because nobody knows what the future holds. But also it's just it's unnecessary. Um, and it means you're going to miss all sorts of opportunities along the way if you're not able to be playful with what might happen. So Ed said it, my friend Ed Brown, he, I remember a retreat years ago. In fact, I think you were there, Kirsten. I think this was at La Lobera in, we won't say what year, because that would embarrass all of us. But when he said, he said, yeah, control is a kind of strange thing to want to have, isn't it? Because A, it's impossible. And B, if you could get it, how dull would that be? I see this in the studio a lot. We'll have parents come in with kids. And then you'll see as the kid is painting, the adult arm just suddenly reach across and start painting over what they just did. It's, yeah. Oh yeah. Um, it's not all the time, but it definitely happens. And I think it's because the parents too often they're living through their children. Yeah. So find by what their child is behaving like producing, looking like, etc. And then they get in this whole idea of, well, it has to look a certain way for me. And there's that whole idea about conscious parenting. Like if we're not even our ideal self, how can we put it that on our children to carry? And it takes what you were talking about going back to control. It's, you know, we can only control what's happening right here. Yeah. But so often we're trying to control all everything of this yeah. and all we like, can control you know, is we show up, you know? And I think I what happens even here, uh, control is a tall order. It's, it's more like, you know, <laughs> definitely. Please know there's nothing controlled here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like, you know, uh, what's amazing. Uh, I mean, sorry, the God, this conversation is so rich. There's so many ways we could go, but I'm in mind of, um, uh, so there's a there's a cardiologist here, a guy called Dennis Noble, who's a systems biologist. By by here, I'm pointing in the direction of Baydale College, which is over there. And he 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 is the man that built a virtual model of the heart. And his life's work was about um, trying to understand how heart rhythm occurs. So this is a pretty important subject, right? We all depend on this, right? The heart rhythm. And um, and so what he was looking for was the control unit the pacemaker unit so when people's heart rhythm doesn't work so well we give them a pacemaker unit and those work but the thing is in a naturally healthy heart there is no pacemaker unit so nobody nothing no body of cells no single unit no part of the heart no part of the brain corresponding to the heart controls heart rhythm heart rhythm emerges from the complex interaction 
in a certain set of conditions of the millions of cells that make up the heart. So it's in complexity terms, it's an emergent property. And so it's a kind of very tight analog for a whole bunch of cells improvising, producing a coherent story, right? But in a kind of life-giving way. And so this idea of, of kind of, that we need to control things is, is absolutely bizarre. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's a, I think it's a legacy of the fact that in a certain limited domain, you know, Isaac Newton, he said, uh, I, can, I can measure the orbits of the, of the planets, but not the madness of men. Yeah. And so that measuring the orbits of planets was really successful for dealing with the material universe. Um, but even then, sorry, I'm going to go on a quantum physics binge now, but it's just that even within physics, 200 years later, 100, so, yeah, 100 few years later, even the physicists kind of go, ooh, it's a bit weirder than that, actually. Even the physical material world is a bit stranger than that. It's a dance. It's a, there's nothing actually there. And how you look affects what you see. So, and, and, and nobody really has bothered to embrace that philosophically because that's just all too difficult. Um, but of course, all the old Eastern traditions, they tell us that. So Shiva is the god of destruction and creation at the same time. Oh, look at that. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> um, and Taoism yeah, and all the rest of it. So, uh, yeah, so where I'm going with all this, if you go back to the kids, right? So how, you remember Adam's story in Eating the Big Fish about, I forget his name now, um, the founder, uh, was Herb Kelleher, the founder of oh. Southwest Airlines? When, when they started Southwest Airlines and the, what seemingly impossible task, so imagine he was a kindergarten child at this principal school, and he says, I want to turn the plane around in 10 minutes from landing, getting everybody off, passing, you know, cleaning, putting food on, getting out, going around again. And, and, you know, they said to him, you know, that, that can't be done. And so when people said to him afterwards, how did you do that? He said, well, we didn't know it couldn't be done because he was a lawyer and he came into the airline industry from somewhere else. And so in Adam's world, the idea of, you know, challenger brands coming from intelligent naivety, well, who's intelligently naive if not a five-year-old child? Yeah, exactly. And, um, <laughs> which reminds me, which reminds me of Groucho Marx. I love that, you know. A child of five could understand this, understand this. Somebody fetch a child of five. You know, it's like, that's what you want to do in your brainstorming sessions, like fetch children. Yes, fetch children. <laughs> Thank you for joining us for part two of our conversation. In part three, we dive much deeper with Rob into the power of the pause. He's written a whole book on it. This isn't just about what a pause can do for you, but it's also about this incredible place you can get to a place that lives in the middle of notice more, use everything and let go, where it almost feels like you can shift time and just see things very clearly in the moment. It's a really good stuff. Hope you'll join us for part three. Thank you and have a great day.